Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy, organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years, and that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit-chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. That's urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food Revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Brandon Peterman of Sundog School of Natural Building to talk about his experience with natural building. Brandon grew up in Southern California and went to University of Southern California, Riverside. Always feeling a connection to nature, he has been living on homesteads in the woods for the past four years and has been actively doing natural building for the past three years. He has participated in building over two dozen natural structures from cottages to bread ovens, garden walls to covered benches and other homestead-based structures. His goal is to create a fully functioning working farm with a gardening education program and a year-round school. After his own apprenticeship, Brandon joined Kirk Mobert of the Sundog School of Natural Building, which is based on 50 acres in Guilala, California. The school offers classes on a rotating basis and apprenticeships in natural building. 
Welcome to the show today, Brandon. Hey, thanks for having me, Greg. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Sure. I grew up in the suburbs of Southern California, about 30 miles east of L.A., and I always never quite felt at home in the suburbs. Uh, I was the kid who was always outside and running up to the local mountains in the woods to try to get away from it. <laughs> yeah. And when I graduated college, uh, my plan was to go overseas and teach English. Uh, I had a really big passion for traveling. Unfortunately, a couple months before I graduated, my mother was diagnosed with dementia, mm. and uh, I had to put my life on hold to uh, help take care of my family situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, several several years later, I was working at a uh, museum and botanical gardens as a security guard in Southern California. And on my way to work, I was in a very bad car accident. Um, a, a teenage girl texting on her phone uh, blared through a red light and T-boned wow. me at 50 miles an hour. Wow. So I, I came out of the accident okay. And I remember sitting on the curb looking at my car and thinking how quickly my life could have changed or been ended, and I had never done any of the things that I wanted to do. Wow. Uh, so at this time, we were transitioning to Arizona. Uh, my mother's medical bills got very expensive, and we had to sell our home there to move out here. And after that time, my father also acknowledged uh, that I had uh, given up quite a bit, and he encouraged me to go out and do what I wanted to do. And so the first step I took was to become an intern at Turtle Island Preserve in Boone, North Carolina. Oh. Um, some, some of you might be familiar with the property. It's run by Eustace Conway, um, pretty pragmatic uh, American figure, really wonderful guy. Unfortunately, during my time there, it wasn't a, a very good fit for me. Mm. And I found myself there and... Um, I didn't exactly know where to go next. The uh, The decision to go was pretty impulsive and I lived my life on a relatively impulsive track. Uh -huh. And one of the other guys there had this book called The Hand Sculpted House. And um, that's by Yonto Evans and Leslie Jackson. Since the rediscovery of Cobb Building, it's been the kind of go-to manual for introducing people into Cobb and natural building as a whole. And he had this book and I saw the cover and I was just entranced by the picture on the cover. And I was like, I, I got to borrow that book. Uh -huh. And I read through it in, in a day, I sat down for a whole day and blasted through the book. And I, I knew that's what I wanted to be doing. Mm. So I got online and started contacting schools and Kirk offered me a full scholarship, um, to the school. When I left Turtle Island Preserve, I had $60 to my name. It was oh, the poorest wow. I had ever been. And I had $60 in a car, and uh, he was good enough to allow me to come out to his property several months before the course started. And I'd work traded on his property for the school. Uh -huh. And after it was all done, I ended up staying another three months and continued to work with him. And uh, ever since then, I've been hooked. And that's how my journey started. And now I'm a co-instructor at the school with him. Nice. So you were on the East Coast at the Turtle Island uh, facility, right? Yes. Yeah, it's in Boone, North Carolina. Beautiful, beautiful place. If, oh, yeah. you ever get, if you ever find yourself there, I highly recommend you check it out. So, and you were there with a the car and $60, and you had to get to the West Coast 
How did you do that? Yeah, so I came back. To, <laughs> um, I went into debt on a credit card to get oh. the gas to get back here, okay. and then I worked at a horse stable, shoveling uh, shoveling horse doo doo for about four months before I had saved up enough to to ride me through the the upcoming year. Yeah, and uh, yeah, by any means necessary, right? Yeah, yeah. You know what? That's that's uh, a lesson some people don't ever get is we just have to do whatever it takes in order to get to our dream. And it sounds like that's one of the things you did. Yeah. And it's one thing I really, uh, appreciate my parents. I, I got my first job. <laughs> they forced me to get my first job when I was uh, 13 years old uh-huh. and I've been working ever since. And, um, you know, at the time when you're a kid, you hate it, but my work ethic has been the only thing that has made my lifestyle possible. And, uh, I'm very, very thankful for that lesson. Wow. Yay. So natural building and cob building, let's talk about those. What, what are they? So natural building is kind of a different thing for everybody. The way I describe it is using locally sourced materials where, um, whatever that may be, Mm -hmm. uh, to construct human habitation that's uh, safe and hopefully non-toxic. So, if you're in a place like where I am now in Prescott and you have excellent clay, it's it's great for cob building. Mm-hmm. If you lived in a city where you had recycled materials from other buildings, in my opinion, that's natural building. You know, ah. repurposing whatever materials you can mm-hmm. uh, to provide yourself with a reliable structure. Um, cob is a mix of clay-rich soil, sand, and straw uh, mixed together with water. Um, when we do our workshops, we mix by foot on a tarp by stomping all the materials together. Oh. Uh, there are other people who do very large construction projects who use bulldozers to mix their product. Oh, wow. Um, and you're building large monolithic freeform walls. It's very similar to adobe. The only difference is that adobe is pressed into, pressed into bricks and mortared together. And adobe has been uh, a building technique that has been used in the American Southwest for hundreds of years. Yeah. Cobb itself, um, in one way or another, has existed for thousands of years. Um, there are very, very old earthen buildings throughout the Middle East and Africa uh, that are s- still standing after hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And it developed a small following in Europe about three, four hundred years ago um, in parts of England and Wales. Um, there's still cob houses there that exist today. Uh, very, very beautiful, massive structures, uh, three foot walls on them. Just um, wow, really, really incredible. And uh, it was the technology was kind of rediscovered by Yanto Evans about 20, 25 years ago. He grew up in a cob house in Wales, and was kind of mystified by um, by the structure and the mm-hmm. fact that he didn't see any of them. So all the rediscovery of it can really be attributed to him and his partner, Linda Smiley. And they've been on the forefront of bringing it back into popular, um, kind of popular culture. And it's becoming a little bit of a phenomena, Yeah. but there's, there's several different kinds of buildings. Uh, one that's very pop gaining popularity out here is uh, straw bale homes. Right. And that's a great system. It can also be mixed with, uh, mixed and integrated with cob to do a hybrid called bale cob. Oh, and, and there, there's, um, there's, t- there's tons of different kinds. You can do uh, cordwood structures where you use cordwood for your wall construction installation with a clay mortar. Um, you can do light straw, which is a process of, 
getting a straw bale, fluffing it all up so it's all nice and loose, and you throw it out on a tarp, taking a material we make called clay slip, which is a, kind of a, a thin mud, and uh-huh. rolling the straw around in the tarp, and using traditional um, stick framing, which most people are familiar with with conventional construction, uh, by altering your stud, st- stud system, you can put forms, plywood forms, against your wall and take that uh, mud-coated straw, stuff it in between the forms of your wall, and immediately remove them. And you're basically making your wall a giant insulated panel. And that's oh, wow. what I've done for uh, the home the home that I live in in Northern California. I built a home on my buddy's property that's still in progress. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's also heavy straw, which is basically the same thing, except it's coated and it's a lot, it has a lot more uh, structural stability. It doesn't necessarily need the, the heavy amount of stick framing that the other would. Um, and even if you're living in an area that's heavily forested, um, uh-huh. doing uh, traditional timber framing or post and beam log cabin, that's, that's also natural building. It's using the resources around you um, that are available and don't need to be uh, trucked across mass distances and have all those hidden costs that go involved with a lot of modern construction. Yeah. Wow. So that's natural building. And there, there's a wide range. And it sounds to me, and you said this, I think twice, you said basically, if you find it nearby. Yeah, if you find it nearby, and it's a resource, um, take advantage. Um, for the foundations of our buildings in our area, we have um, in Northern California, we have really bad stone. Uh, it's, it's shale, and it breaks apart really easily and uh-huh. can't be used. Uh, for foundations. So we go up to our county yard in the south end of Mendocino County, uh-huh. and they have urbanite there, uh, busted, busted up concrete that we right. they let us take for free and we repurpose um, and use for our foundations of our buildings. It's, it's not the prettiest thing, but it's a way to recycle a material that would otherwise uh, just yeah. sit and take up space and yeah. not be used. Um, so huge advocates of getting as much as we can for free. Um, I'm a big fan of dumpster diving. Uh-huh. Uh, I love going and looking for the trash for in- through the trash for interesting things to put into buildings. Oh, um, yeah. So yeah, you know anything that can be repurposed and locally sourced, uh, in my opinion, is is natural. Natural building. building. Cool. Well, then I've been doing natural building here at the Urban Farm for a long time. <laughs> I have. On oh the, yeah, absolutely. On the back patio, I have what is rep- it's repurposed pool edging you know the the you know when you jump up and sit on the edge of a pool a friend right. a friend of mine was demoing his pool and i said what are you doing with all that and they said they're hauling it to the dump and i said let's put it in my truck and so it's seating on the back patio here at the urban farm so i love that so yeah absolutely it goes back into permaculture no waste you yeah. know use whatever you can yeah yeah. So you, you've mentioned a couple of places you get materials from. Is there so for clay and sand and those and straw that that stuff's pretty much locally available, is it not? Yeah, for the most part, uh, we do. We mine all our clay on the property. We have uh, great building soil. We get our sand from a local quarry mm-hmm. and the closest we can source our straw from is a little farther north. Uh, they do a lot of rice growing up there. So we use rice straw. Oh, nice. Um, but uh, it's 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 the closest we can get. Uh, it's it's still about a three hour drive from us, but you know it's it's a pretty decent compromise. Yeah. But the straw is not, you know, absolutely necessary. Um, you can use other materials in your environment um, that provide tensile strength. That's the purpose of the straw is ah. to provide tensile strength. Right. Say so, more. Say more about you know, that tensile use, strength. What what's that? 
So when you're constructing a wall, your your three materials uh, have different qualities. Mm -hmm. uh, the clay is your the clay is your binder that holds everything together. Mm -hmm. Your sand is the compressive strength that gives strength to the wall, oh. and and stabilizes it vertically. And the straw provides tensile strength, which helps it from pulling apart during the drying process and locking it all together. Got it. Uh, so there's lots of different things you can use for that. Um, you could use any kind of long fiber, um, you know, uh, recycled blue jeans, uh, local oh. vines that are growing on your property, mm -hmm. um, anything that can um, just provide that same that same function, basically. It doesn't have to be straw. There's lots of other things, um, depending on your environment, that can uh -huh. be used. Here, I've made some uh, adobe bricks by crushing up yucca stock. Yucca stock has oh. great fiber in it. Oh, yes, of And it's very, it very long. It's a little it's a little time consuming to separate it, but I wanted to make a homogeneous mix uh, strictly from my property. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a great mix of clay and sand on the property that I'm currently at in Prescott, and yeah, it, it works out great. You know, it's just how much time do you want to invest? The straw is also just you know for obvious sake's convenient, and yeah. um, we can go to the store and pick it up rather than go through the forest and try to harvest what we need right. off the landscape. But it can be done and if you if you have the motivation highly encourage it to be done yeah so um yeah that's that's basically the makeup of cob and then water to just integrate mix it all together yeah it sounds to me like there's a bit of a science behind this too a little bit yeah i mean you really can't you can't avoid soil sciences when you're right. when you're coming into this process. Whenever you're going to build a structure, you need to test your soil uh, to see what the qualities are and if it's good for cob. And for that, you need a fairly high clay content, uh, which is great here. I was going through northern Idaho a couple months ago. I considered uh, potentially purchasing property out there and went around and did several soil samples throughout two different counties. Oh wow! And um, the average. The average clay content of the soil, I'd say, is around uh, 10%. It's fairly low, mm -hmm. and uh, it's very silty, sandy loam. It's all the landscape is formed from uh, old glacial uh, oh, right. activity. So, yeah. so there's really just not much clay in it. And I went to the extent of going to a quarry because uh, I could obviously only test the surface soil. So I went to a quarry and was like, "Hey, at what depth are you guys hitting clay?" And they kind of looked at me like, "What clay?" That's something I had never experienced, you know, living in California and Arizona is finding soils that didn't have adequate contents of clay. Yeah. So if I were to eventually settle in that area, I'd have to rethink my building process. Mm -hmm. I did the research and straw bales there are $2 a bale, which is very, very affordable oh and gosh. locally grown. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, I was I was shocked by the price. I think we pay about $12 exactly. a bale, but we're in a very little small town on the coast. So I'm not surprised about that. Yeah. But it would complicate things in the matter that even though, um, you know, I wouldn't have enough for cob, it's still not enough clay content to even do a proper clay plaster. Mm. So there would have to be uh, there would have to be um, a thought process going into that to kind of weigh the options of whether or not it would be worth it or even viable at all to uh, do the kind of building that I want there. Yeah. So I'm I'm currently uh, looking around a little bit more and exploring my options. Oh, cool, cool. So how do building codes fit into all this? Building codes are favorable towards some methods of natural building. Mm -hmm. uh, straw bale houses uh, are permitted here in um, in Arizona. They're permitted in California. But in the general sense, if an architect came to look at a cob building 
I don't think they'd really understand a whole lot of what was going on in the building. Right. And uh, it's it's not really acknowledged by the building codes. There are houses that have been permitted. And in some cases, I've the compromises they've had to make in order to get them permitted, I think, uh, take away from the integrity of the building structurally uh-huh. and could potentially be problematic. So uh, our attitude at the school is we don't really care <laughs> if it's uh, if it's acknowledged by the building code or not. I, th- I think it's an inherent human right to be able to br- provide yourself with shelter. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I agree that, you know, there's building codes for a reason. Um, it's, it's trying to ensure the safety of people who uh, may acquire the property uh, in the future. And, but for our purposes, you know, we're out of school. We need to build to, in order to teach. Uh-huh. And so my my partner has basically decided that you know if we if we catch anything from building codes, then we'll just deal with it when the time comes. Yeah. All our buildings are very well documented photographically, so we do have evidence of how they were constructed. Yeah. And you can get away with some smaller structures. Um, kind of the the federal the federal law is that a uh, a structure under 200 feet that's not a primary residence can be constructed without a permit. Right. Um, but but some counties try to circumvent that. In Northern California, where we're at, uh, it's 120 square feet of internal space. Oh. And that changed that changed from 120 square feet period because people were doing straw bale structures and they're very wide. And so oh, there right. was a compromise made to, to make it internal space so that you could account for, you know, the size of the bales and uh, not take away from the function of your building. Right. So, you know, you need to check with your local codes to see where you're at on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something that I'm particularly not too concerned with. And if I developed a property in the future, I don't think I would really worry about permitting. I, I do what I was going to do and worry about the the repercussions later personally. Yeah. Uh, do it and then ask don't ask for permission ask for forgiveness i think we call that correct yeah so how do these structures survive the weather they they do excellent um you know the the biggest enemy of cob in particular we focus mostly on cob because it's really the most popular uh-huh. um and if we want to if we want to teach workshops and get people interested then we have to teach what people are interested in and that's primarily cob so Focusing on that, uh, the biggest enemy of Cobb is water. Um, mm. You don't want to build in the floodplain. You don't want you don't want water seeping into the walls of your building because it can make it structurally unstable. So, the the general consensus is that with a good foundation and a good roof, you're totally okay. And oh, they've right. done studies. They've done studies on some of the surviving buildings in England, and you know they they have very wet weather, driving rains, right? And co- they found that Cobb loses about a, an inch of material every century. Oh my god! So, <laughs> you know, with with you know a kind of very bare minimum one foot wall, with little to no work, would survive a very long time as long as the roof and the foundation held. Right. Um, and, and, you know, if you're going out there and reapplying plasters every once in a while just to make your house look pretty, you're probably gaining uh, width to your wall just yeah. by adding those plasters yeah. with the the lack of deterioration that's happening. Yeah. So, 
we're building in a very wet place. We're on, we're on the coast in Northern California mm-hmm. and the average rainfall there's about 55 to 60 inches. Wow. Um, we've been in a drought. We've been in a drought for the past four years. We're kind of up to par with rain this year. Um, but you know, we've had houses out there and they're doing fine. And in a lot of ways we're experimenting as well. A lot of the buildings in the Middle East and Africa, mm-hmm. especially in Africa where they do get monsoon weather, there are basically cop structures that are built right on the ground. And they do they do certain things to um, ensure that the walls don't receive too much damage uh, with proper grading, grading the, uh, the surrounding landscape away from the house to help with drainage. Mm-hmm. And uh, they'll, they'll build a kind of sacrificial toe on the bottom of their wall that'll flare out. Oh. So any surface water that comes into contact could potentially wash that away, but it won't affect it won't affect the main structure of their yeah. wall and they'll go back and rebuild that toe as necessary. And so we've decided that we wanted to do some experimentation with that in, in our weather. The reason the foundation thing kind of came to be was when Ianto Evans and Michael Smith were building one of their first structures out in Oregon, uh-huh. uh, they decided to build on this nice little rocky outcrop. When the rains came, the groundwater level rose to the surface oh. and it flooded out their floor. So they decided that, hey, we need to have foundations on these buildings. And it's been kind of the unwritten law ever since that foundations must be included in your building. But in order for the technology to progress, both my business partner and I are very avid in testing what's been considered the norms and finding if they, number one, are necessary Mm -hmm. all the time under all circumstances. And, you know, what's problematic? You know, we may lose a building one day, but we'll get to see the process and learn from that process. Um, I think it's always important to be testing the abilities of the material that that you're using if you don't test and experiment and do things new and differently, you'll never learn anything new. And the last thing we want to do in in particularly something like this is to become stagnant and um, have a very ironclad way of doing things. And that's the only way because, you know, these are owner built structures. We want if we want to be able to circumvent issues of maybe having, you know, poor rock in the area or, you know, other things like that. You know, what if we didn't have that urbanite, then what would we do? So, you know, we're always experimenting and trying new things just to see how viable they can be. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So on your list of questions that I have for you, you talk about rocket stoves. Can you tell us a little bit about them and when someone would want to use them? And really, what are they? Rocket stoves are really interesting. Um, it's kind of my business partner partner's specialty. The the technology has been going through a discovery for about the past 10 years. And my partner, Kirk, uh, was one of kind of the first and primary experimenters uh, in the United States. And he he actually started a really great forum. If you have uh, interest in rocket stoves, um, it's uh, www.donkey, like the animal, 32.proboards.com. Hmm. And it's an international forum. There's people chiming in from all over the globe. Their experiments, you know, uh-huh. from wow. the from the average home builder to people who are getting really scientific with it and doing some incredible things. Particularly, Peter Vandenberg. Uh, I think he's Danish. Uh, uh-huh. He might be from Denmark or maybe from Bel- from Belgium. I'm not sure, but he's done some. He's made some very very uh, incredible discoveries with the technology. But uh, what a rocket stove is is kind. It's a it's a modern. Uh, mass heater 
So the way we heat air today is, or the way we heat our homes today is by heating the air, which is one of the, the most inefficient and uh, expensive methods of, of heating a home. It's far superior to heat a mass that once the fire is gone, uh, it still retains heat right. and can radiate it even after the system is no longer in use. Mm -hmm. So uh, Cobb is very dense, excellent thermal mass. Uh, so you basically have a very strange looking, oh. strange looking fire device. Uh, it's, it's really hard to describe. You'd have to go on online to really look at it to see what I'm talking about. But uh, it's an alternative to potbelly stoves. You can, you can rig up your rocket stove to run through a mass, like I said. Uh, you can heat a bench. You can heat oh. a floor. You uh -huh. can heat a bed by, by running your stove by running your stovepipe through it. And this is a, a very old technology as well. Right. Uh, in China, they used to have ca kangs, which were giant masonry heaters that would heat bed systems. Oh, and in the Romans, they had the hypocaust. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's been around for a very, very long time, uh, but the technology has been lost a little bit. But the, it has great advantages. You know, wood stoves put off a lot of smoke. And whenever oh, yes. you see smoke, that's all unburned fuel. Uh, that's not being that the fire is not roaring hot enough to burn off the chemicals, those flammable chemicals in the wood. So right. you have smoke and you have air pollution. Um, the rocket stoves at the kind of apex of their heat in the system can get very, very hot. Um, they can get uh, over 1500 degrees. Oh my gosh. Um, so. So by the time you've run the firewood through your system, the, if you've done it right, the only thing that's leaving your stovepipe is air vapor, is steam. Mm, and is the it... stovepipe is actually cool enough that you can go out and touch your stovepipe. It doesn't go really over, you know, 100 degrees. Right. So really what you're doing, rocket stoves burn so hot they burn everything. Right. They haven't passed... Uh, all the inspections yet because they do have a, a certain amount of particulate that goes through and that's the only regard that they fail mm -hmm. um, being permitted but another advantage too especially in air, you know areas of the desert where there's not a lot of wood available uh -huh. uh, it uses stick size fuel uh, right. and through running your system you'd burn about a tenth of the wood that you would using a traditional pot belly stove for the same heat return wow cool Cool, cool, cool. So in talking about Sundog School of Natural Building, you guys have an, an apprenticeship program. Can you tell us about that? Sure. The The apprenticeship lasts uh, three months, mm -hmm. and it's the program that I did, and I'd, I'd highly recommend it to anybody. It was a, it was a big life-changing experience for me. And from that time that you get there, we're instantly teaching you about natural building, in the past, we've run uh, two nine-day build workshops where we work on cottages or other structures. Um, this year, I think we're only going to do one, but the apprentices are the ones that actually get to design the structure, oh. which is something that's kind of unique about our school. Uh -huh. whenever, you, whenever you show up to a build, you know, the design is usually predetermined. And one All thing right. that I really appreciate our school is that we allow our students to uh, design the building themselves. And um, then we'll, we'll, we'll have a, a nine-day workshop, bring in a crew, get, get all the hands we need, and, and do the building there. Um, this year's program is going to be a little bit different, um, and it's going to be, I think, a really, really beneficial program for who's ever interested. Uh, we have 
quite a few buildings on the property that have not been fully finished um, just from time constraints and weather constraints and all that kind of thing. So this year um, from the pretty much the first day people get there, they're going to have their hands in the mud and they're going to be working with natural materials, finishing floors in the building, doing earth and plasters, doing finished plasters. It's going to be a really banner year to be at the school. There's going to be a lot to be learned. Nice. Nice. How exciting is that? So if somebody wants to find out about that program, where do they find it at? You can find us on our website at sundogbuilders.net. The email is info at sundogbuilders.net. And then we also have a Facebook page as well, uh, Sundog School of Natural Building. Um, You can contact us through that as well. Perfect. Perfect. So I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. I think my biggest failure and a very common failure for a lot of people is just learning the design process. Uh, When I started my apprenticeship, uh, the first week I was there, uh, I was still relatively new to even what natural building was. I didn't have an extensive knowledge of this before I went in and I had read a book and was, and made the split decision to just go do it. So (laughs) when I got there, the first, the first thing, uh, my, my buddy told me to do my now business partner, uh, he told me to design a building. So I sat down and over a couple of days designed a building and by conventional construction standards, it was a fairly small building. It was, uh, about 800 square feet and he's like, it looks good but uh, make it smaller. So I went through and, and redid and redid my design. And I think it came out to about 625 square feet. And he looked at the drawing and said, good, now make it smaller. Make it smaller. <laughs> and, my, and by the time I had finished, my design had completely changed to a, a small two-story building that had 150 square feet with a 75 foot, square foot footprint. And wow. that's very, very valuable to build small. First of all, I spend most of my time outdoors. Uh, the only time I'm indoors is to go to sleep at night. Right. So I realized that I don't need a lot of space inside because I don't do anything inside. So it helped me look at my, my living circumstances. And the great thing about natural building and building your own home is you custom build to your needs. And I gain an understanding of what my true needs were. And the second thing is that a lot of people, when they get interested in Cobb and get all excited, they may go do a workshop and be like, yeah, I'm going to do this at home. And then they go and they get started and they realize that they all of a sudden don't have the 20 people there that were at the workshop. And while it's something that everybody can do from kids to old, from kids to, you know, seniors, Mm -hmm. it's very labor intensive. So, I think the statistic is that over 80% of Cobb buildings of the United States that exist are unfinished because people will start large projects and find out how completely overwhelming it's become mm. and give up. So it's really, really changed my my perspective on design. I've never had any catastrophic building things um, that would, you know, that just resulted in, you know, terrible, terrible failures. But yeah. My, my, my design, my design issue was something that, um, really needed to be tweaked and molded and, um, and, uh, just my understanding of the material and what went into it. Yeah. So, and it's, it's progressed quite a lot. Cool. So what do you consider your biggest success? 
I consider I consider the entire process um, that mm. I've gone through a success, mm-hmm. and it's it's what I've come to really love about teaching. You know, don't get me wrong. I, you know, I'm a builder first and foremost. Um, I also do woodworking, and I love to build. And you know, when I when I first the the, the main appealing thing to me when I first started building was the cost. You know, it's very, very cheap to make these buildings. Um, I don't think we've ever spent more than $2,000 on building uh, one of the one of the cottages that we build on site. Wow. And that was the thing that hooked me because I've always been poor. I will probably always be poor. So the cost effective thing was the th- was what really got me. But that changed very, very quickly when I saw the community that was involved and uh, really became a part of what a lot of people who are interested in this consider kind of a mystical world. Mm-hmm. And it's it's what I what I really really have come to enjoy now is not not what I'm teaching people to do with their hands, but how they can now see the world in a different way and realize that if they have a dream that they can do it and giving them the confidence in themselves to be able to do it. We're we're so often told that we need a specialist to do everything for us, that we're incapable of doing things for ourselves. And that's just not true. You know, sure, sure. There's some things like some, some really good key points for, you know, creating a successful building and not putting yourself in danger. But you know, the, with, through the workshops, we basically just sell a permission slip. We, we give people <laughs> the confidence to go out and do what they could have already done. Yeah. And, and that's something really powerful in a time where a lot of people, uh, feel kind of helpless to their circumstance and, uh, the world can sometimes seem very bleak and unable to separate ourselves from the things that we see inherently wrong with the way our society is running. This, this gives people an outlet and uh, a sense of pride and uh, security in themselves to, to know that they can do whatever they set out to do. That, that was also my big takeaway from my time in Turtle Island. You know, while it wasn't a great experience to see somebody who through endless amounts of hard work and sacrifice had gone out and made their dream possible, no matter how many people told them they couldn't, Uh um, was, has been one of the most important lessons, um, I've ever received because the, the reality is, is, you know, I grew up in the suburbs, you know, Mm -hmm. even when I, when I talk about what I do with my friends, they, they're glad that I'm happy, but they can't even begin to really understand why yeah. I do what I do. Yeah. And so in, in a world where, where everyone's telling you can't and being able to erase that and say, you absolutely can. All you need is the determination and the will to do it. That's that's what I, I love most about it. Yeah. Yeah. What drives you? That, that, that very fact, you know, to me anyways, things can seem sometimes very, very bleak when you look at the world from a broad perspective. And um, I have no delusions of grandeur. I don't think in any way, shape or form, I will change the world. 
but I do very strongly believe that I can set an example where someone in future generations will come along and pick up where I left off mm. and do something really dramatic in the world. And I think that's one of our huge problems as a society in general is our short-sightedness. We have to have the capability to look beyond our own lives and see what comes next. Because I, I personally don't have any children, but maybe one day I will. And I want to leave the best world possible. Yeah. And, um, and I really believe that a lifetime of hard work and of doing, of doing this type of thing, um, has the ability to give future generations the tools they need to move forward. That's a big part of why I do what I do. <laughs> so I'm all about education and I have to know <laughs> what one book has been influential for you in this process in your life. I'd have to say the big one would have to be The Hand Sculpted House. It's like I said, it's been kind of the, the go-to book, the Bible for an introduction into natural building. And I highly recommend uh, anyone who's interested to check it out. There are some things in there um, that are kind of now obsolete. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the book needs to be up it needs to be updated, but just as a general resource and the philosophy behind it, as well as the practical application of it, if I were to pick a book on Cobb, it would have to be The Hand Sculpted House. Perfect. What one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? If, if you have an interest, get out in your backyard and do it. You, you know, that the, the biggest thing is, you know, like I said, people feel like they need somebody say so in order to try this and do it to make sure they're doing it right and i'm giving everyone a permission slip right now <laughs> go out and experiment um you'll figure out you'll you'll work your way out uh through it you know modern education system teaches us to memorize and repeat you know you have to reactivate your critical thinking and your analytical thinking but everyone out there is completely capable of doing this um our ancestors thousands of years ago were doing this it is in our dna to do this so go out and practice build small, um, start with a small project. Uh, bread ovens are a really, you know, good little side project to start on. You can do it in your backyard and then you get the byproduct of fresh bread and fresh pizza whenever you mm -hmm. want it. And it's, a, it, that's something that everyone just kind of gravitates toward. And it's not a time consuming project. You can do it in a week. And, uh, there's several resources on the internet, you know, videos that will kind of walk you through it and uh and teach you a little bit about the process but you know if, if this is something that you're interested in don't let it stop you you know yeah. uh sometimes at the school people will come in they've been saying oh you know i've been dreaming about this for for years i've been you know researching it and looking at pictures and you know don't don't wait you know life is short you never know what's going to happen and if it's something that you want to do and it's something that you're interested in just go out and do it try experiment fail you learn you learn your best lessons from your failures don't be afraid to fail yeah. and yeah just uh, have have faith in yourself and um, and your ability to to try something new yeah beautiful you have our permission <laughs> absolutely go out and build so thank you so much for joining us on the show today and sharing your experience with us, Brandon. It's been a treat getting to chat with you. Thank you for having me. I, re I really had a good time with it. Yeah. So uh, people can find the website again for the school is? Sundogbuilders.net. And to get a hold of you? 
Uh, me personally, I guess you can find me on Facebook. Uh, my name is Brandon Peterman, and uh, I'm here in uh, Prescott, Arizona. So if you'd like to contact me directly, feel free to shoot me uh, shoot me a message, and uh, we'll connect. I can answer some questions you may have. Perfect. And we will have a link, urbanfarm.org backslash natural build. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy, organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years, and that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit-chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. That's urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, Hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago. Then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's denalicanning.com forward slash free.